Today, we're joined by Kaysen Gornson, the head of marketing at an early stage company called WorkSuite. And before that, she was the VP of marketing at a thousand person software company called Marigold. She's got experience with companies at all sorts of different stages, and she unpacks all of her experience for us today. She had a really unique perspective on getting sales and marketing teams more aligned by getting them to speak the same language. We also talked about how to build an effective marketing structure and how Kaysen builds her teams depending on the stage of company that she's at. And like me, Kaysen is a bit of a data nerd. So we got into the details about how to choose the marketing programs and channels that are really doing well for you and doubling down on those and how to cut the stuff that isn't working. And if you get just a little bit of value from this today, the best thing you can do is send it to a friend that might enjoy it as well. Or if you're listening on Spotify, we'd love a nice review from you. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can like and subscribe. And if you're listening to an Apple podcast, we'd love a review from you there as well. All right, let's get into the episode. Today, we are joined by Kaysen Gorenson. She was the former VP of marketing at Marigold, a thousand plus person marketing software company. Um, she oversaw a team of nine direct reports and under that team was another 56 people covering marketing ops, branding, web development, creative, and some other teams. I am very excited to have her on today. Kaysen, how's it going? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Have you adjusted back to uh, your time zone after this time you spent in Europe? I have not. Um, okay, I'm kidding. I have. I just am not ready to be back in America and not on vacation mode. The Real quick, Ray, you were, you were in Italy. What is, uh, what's the one thing, if you went back, that you would definitely do again? Um, that's hard. I would definitely go back to Rome. Um, and I think my favorite part of that was honestly just wandering the city to see where you ended up. Um, one night, accidentally strolled upon the Pompeii Theater, which, if you guys don't know, that's where Caesar was killed. Did that totally not planned and on accident. So I think I would honestly just roam again and see see where I end up. Very cool. I In uh, sixth grade, I reenacted uh, Caesar being killed. And I my my big line was, et tu brute. Um, I literally walked around the whole night after stumbling upon that, just asking the question. <laughs> uh, well, also, also, I forgot to mention, you're, um, you've been a startup advisor as well uh, to some early stage companies. So you have a pretty good range of experience dealing with scale-ups and early-stage companies. Mm -hmm. But I want to, let's, let's talk about your background a little bit more. Yeah, perfect. Anything unique in your background that you think has given you a bit of an edge in your marketing leadership journey? I mean, I think every marketing leader has something that makes them unique or they wouldn't have made it there. Um, and it's always easier to point out other people's than your own. But for me, I think I've dabbled in a lot of the various lens of marketing. While some people like to very much focus and individualize kind of what makes them a great marketer, I have stayed more generic. So I've done some demand gen. I've done the account-based marketing. I've been in marketing ops. I've been in, been in brand. I've been in, you know, a few different roles. So I think it's really how do I blur them together and make a cohesive marketing strategy? I would say that's probably more what's unique than necessarily I'm insert function here. Right. I, you know, I think that's that's actually kind of what you need to be a really successful leader. You need to build that generalist skill set so that, because at some point, right, you need to be able to hire people that are better than you at the various different functions. But 
you need to be able to speak with authority and credibility, both to your team and the other execs about all the different areas. Exactly. You hit it, you hit it spot on. I very specifically hire people who are definitely smarter than me in a lot of ways, but especially in their functions and then just defer to them. They're the expert, not me. But, but I think where I come to play is how do I get them to have those conversations together and with other teams and facilitate those so that we're building a cohesive strategy that makes sense across the board and not just so siloed on one function or one area that, that we're missing another piece or we're blindsided. Let me ask you a follow-up on that. So, right, you, when you're hiring someone, you're obviously looking for some specific specialty that they might have at some some more technical skill set, right, in marketing that they're really good at. But across all these people, you were just talking about how important that communication is. So what are some of those softer things or other parts of your interview process that you're typically indexing on a lot that's kind of evergreen across every different role that you're hiring for? Absolutely. I think it's culture fit. And I know everyone talks about culture and it's it's very hard to word, put that into words um, and say, yes, they're a culture fit. But I look at it as, especially at work, we're spending more waking hours with our coworkers and at work than we are with anyone else in our lives. So it comes down to at the end of the day, do you want to work with this person? Do you think you could work with this person? It's harder to gauge, but even at the end of the day, I think a lot of it comes down to how they communicate. And even if the words are wrong, are they? do you understand what they're saying? And can you, do you feel like you can pick up where they're leaving off? And they can pick up where you're leaving off. And that's really going to start to tell you, yes, we're going to make a good team in how we augment each other. Yeah, I I can totally understand that. And it's something I've been dealing with recently where I just made a hire internally. And one of the things I noticed is I was just excited to talk to this person, right? The, the communication, he was able to understand the things I was saying. I didn't have to like translate anything in a way that felt like extra work for me. He was just able to pick it up and and get my angle and my point of view on a lot of things. And that's not to say I want to surround myself with just people that yes me to death, but that communication fluidity is so important, especially if you're running a smaller team, because um, I think it's right, like that stuff is going to exacerbate everything. And I, the other the other piece that too is that's also, I feel like one of the easiest ways that people miss the mark on hiring is they're like, oh, this person's so good on paper. They've got this background. They've got this skill set and they don't hold a high enough bar on the communication culture. Thing. 100%. I think you you hit on the energy level too. Let's be honest. Work is called work for a reason. There are going to be some days that, for lack of a better word, they just suck. They're hard days or there are projects that just are draining. And if you're surrounded by people who give you energy, it's easier to get through those hard days and the hard projects than if they're already draining your energy and you're already like, oh, this person just drains me and exhausts me after. Those days that do exhaust you are going to be so much harder. So even if you feel energized after talking to them, that's a huge cue. I'm not saying forget, do they check out on paper? Do they have the skill set? That's absolutely important. But there are a lot of people who are going to check out on paper. So you need to find the people who on your team, who do you want to work with? Who's going to give you that energy? If you're having one of those worst days, who do you want in the trenches with you 
fixing that horrible problem. Yeah, absolutely. You want you want someone that you, whose company you enjoy. Um, so when when we first met, we bonded a little bit over our own nerdiness around analytics and data. And so I know data visibility for marketing leaders is something you've posted about before and obviously have, have thought a lot about. Um, you talked about how this is something that everyone is looking for, right? A com- complete visibility into their data, but no one can quite find it. Can you unpack your thoughts a bit on data visibility for marketing leadership? Yeah. So for anyone listening, just so you guys know what Jason's talking about, specifically that post, I was basically talking about connected systems and how everyone wants one screen, one dashboard, one report, whatever, one place to go and see the data from Google Analytics, from Salesforce, from their Marketo or their HubSpot, from their in-product. And they want to see everything in this nice, neat dashboard with a bow. The problem is that's really difficult, especially because those platforms all have different ways of measuring for a purpose. Google Analytics measures the website. It is great at measuring your website. When you start trying to tie it to offline analytics, things get a little complicated, especially when you're pulling manual conversions from Salesforce. Well, that data is only as good as humans are because they're the ones entering it. So you start to get complicated. And so that's where I'm not saying abandon the ship, but recognize that each of those platforms has analytics for a reason and they have a time and a place. What do you need consolidated and what can you look elsewhere? And part of the reason I I really feel passionately around this is when you're trying to have that perfect dashboard from all of these tools and all of these systems together, that's where you get into this trap of measuring 75 KPIs. Marketing teams cannot measure 75 KPIs. And they cannot then act on 75 KPIs. And so I think that's where there's a difference in indicator metrics that you need to measure, but they don't tell the whole story. Perfect example, website visitors. Know them, but that alone tells you nothing. You've got to go a few levels deeper to figure out who they are. What are they doing? Are they repeats? Are they spam? Like what is happening with those website visitors as that changes? So know that there's a time and a place for each of those metrics and KPIs, and there's a difference in indicator metrics and a true KPI or goal. Yeah. And I think that's a that's an awesome point, right? You have to measure what matters. And I've certainly made this mistake myself of wanting to measure everything and then like, let's figure out from there what's most important. But what I've found is particularly if we're talking about KPIs or maybe like some OKRs for the quarter um, or whatever other acronym you want to throw out there is just giving the marketing team one or two metrics to focus on for that time interval, whether it's like the month, the week, or or say the quarter. And I found that can be a really powerful way and forcing function to get people to focus on the thing that matters the most and not try to take on every marketing priority that they could because obviously you can always do more. And um, so I'm curious, like what when you're doing OKRs or you're thinking about quarterly goals, how do you do that? Yeah, so not throwing an acronym, but I am a big fan of OKRs actually, or at least the framework behind it, call it what you will, but how there's the company level goals. These are the things we're trying to do. And then it trickles down to, okay, to support those, here are the various departmental goals. And then especially within marketing, departmental goals are typically, here's 
revenue that we're going to contribute to. Here's some sort of CAC or ROI metric. There may be an opportunity goal or something of that nature, but usually it's those two, revenue and CAC. Um, how do you break that down in different departments? Because I think it's easy to give a CAC-related or an ROI-related goal to a demand gen team or a performance marketing team. Very easy. It is very hard to give an ROI goal to a creative team. So how do you break those down into smaller subsets? And how do you do an ROI-related goal for creatives? Or how do you break those down into department-specific teams? so that they can just hit a piece that then feeds into that larger goal. Can you, so this is a very nebulous problem of giving an ROI goal to creative teams. Can you unpack that a little bit more and maybe tell the story how you tried to do that in the past? Yeah, so I think a good example of an ROI goal for a creative team could even be in some combination of how do they hire, so salaries, versus how much are they outsourcing um depending on the company what tactics work what their strategy is all of that a great example is do they need an in-house videographer or if they're only doing so many videos a year that should be outsourced because that's actually a more efficient use of spend so it's more how do they decide that internal work versus outsourcing work um Especially one example from a past life, doing a lot of M&A activity, um, rebrands were involved. Through some trial and error, full disclosure, we learned very quickly that having the branding work, so huge, big projects that affect everything, had been outsourcing that to creative agencies. One, that's very expensive. Um, but two, it caused a lot of problems down the road where basically the internal creative team had to rework it. Or there was a lot of, oh, they missed this, they missed this, this doesn't work with our our other other pieces. And then so we decided, decided to flip that. The things where we had established brand guidelines, it was very easy to outsource. We outsourced, but because that was an established brand, you were able to use freelancers who are much more cost effective and keep those huge projects that took a lot of time, a lot of collaboration internally. So it was a way to basically get the same amount of work done, but by flipping how we were doing it, we were more cost-effective to the bottom line. And it also added benefit was it just produced better results. Yeah, that it kind of reminds me of this rule I've uh, read about in terms of leverage. I think Dan Martell wrote about this where he talks about the, it's like the 10-80-10 rule, where as a, whether as a leader or if you're using an agency um, or a, a contractor, or just a direct report, get the ten per, the first ten percent done. So that's usually super clear instructions. In this case, like brand guideline, and make sure the deliverables are very clear. Or you even started to to work on the first ten percent, then hand over the next eighty percent of execution work for them to go do. And then as you get near the final stages, you help land that last ten percent and give them feedback um, to make sure that it's it's fully realizing what the the original goal was and Obviously, like the numbers can be uh, disputed on that 10-80-10, but it's a good framework of, hey, my job as the leader here is to bookend all of these things. My job is not to be the execution arm in the middle. Absolutely. I think that's where we get tied down so much, especially on creative. 
Creatives are the expert on creative for a reason. There are things we don't understand. And I feel like a lot of times marketing is definitely, especially marketing leadership falls to this, but I think also the ancillary teams. Hey, can you quickly spin me up a landing page? Hey, I need an image for this. Like whatever they're asking for. They think it doesn't take a lot of time and thought. One, it takes a lot of time. But there's more thought that goes into that than expected. There's the psychology. There are testing. There's a lot more that goes into it. And so that's where trust your creatives. If you're giving them that 80% based on this rule, set the guidelines of what do you need, when do you need it by any parameters, check in at the end. But that 80%, remember, they're the expert. Yeah. Let them do it. Yeah, absolutely. And even like... You don't like you, you mentioned check in the end, but I guess you also you don't need to wait all the way till the end. You can have them send you updates. You can do feedback. Okay. Yes. But, you can course correct. Because sometimes right. coming in at the end is a bigger problem. Yes, and right, and then they feel really crappy because they're you like, oh no, this is not aligned with my vision at all. And mm-hmm. they're demotivated to go like redo all this extra work. So it's good to Yeah, have- and they're frustrated. They just especially if they were excited about how it turned out. Right. And they were like, I feel like I did so great here. And you're like, no, this this isn't what I wanted. Um, so at, we're kind of on this this team building topic here for a second. So you've also written about building agile marketing orgs. So like, what does that really mean to you? And what does that mean at different stages of companies? Because I would imagine agile marketing org at a very early stage startup is different than a thousand person company. Yeah. So easier said than done. That's the first thing I'm going to say to the world. Um, but I think it's very much letting the people on your team define the org structure. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times when you sit down and you're like, I'm going to plan hiring for the next year, you put out a nice little org chart. What are the boxes? Who needs to report to who? What functions do we need? What are their job titles? And that's kind of your org planning. You then look up, you know, typical salaries. There's your org by plan, by money, by how they're going to report and Great. The problem with that, people don't fit into nice little boxes. <laughs> and I'm not saying don't do that. I, I design org charts the same way. But being agile with it is after you've designed, okay, this is what I think we need, especially in concert with your org strategy or your marketing strategy for the year, the tactics you need, where are there gaps in your existing team? But also, where's that existing team trying to go? And so a lot of times a job title, I'm going to pick on demand gen for a second. Let's say demand gen, you already have a great demand gen leader and you want to start really focusing in paid media, content syndication, everything there. So you think you need a paid media specialist. Well, one, did you stop and go back to the demand gen? Let's pretend they've been there five years. Have they had this experience? Can they do it? Do they want to do it? Do they like all of those pieces? Maybe they really can do that. And they've been struggling to do your paid search and paid social. Should they pivot? And then you actually just need a paid social specialist or a paid media specialist instead. Like, how does that pivot? And so that's where I say be agile, like focus on where your team has been, what skill sets they have that maybe you don't know because it doesn't fit in their job title. But also, where are they trying to go? Maybe they want to get out of the paid media world and they really want to learn something else. Can you invest in them learning those functions and hire for a totally different role instead? 
And so that's where I say be agile because you want your team to grow with you. Obviously, you can't do that all the time. Some people are trying to go 75,000 degrees removed in a different function or a 360 pivot. Won't work. But how can you help them, especially if it's ancillary, if it's a similar skill or something they've had experience in and they just need, you know, a few courses, a few job shadows. Does it make sense to hire a whole new role that's also going to demotivate them because that's what they wanted to do? And you're kind of wasting a hire. Yeah, I so I come from the recruiting world for startups. And so I have seen many a companies overhire or scope out jobs improperly. And I think kind of to what you were saying, it is it can be a very powerful thing to do once you think you understand the direction you want to go with headcount planning or potential new roles you want to hire for is talk to the team about it whenever you can to get their thoughts on whether it's new work they want to take on or something they want to grow into. You obviously can't do this all the time, but what I think you'll uncover is that you'll be able to slide someone into that new role or give them some of that responsibility set. And that could be good enough for now. And oftentimes that is what we should be planning for is, hey, what's good enough for now that's not going to over leverage us or cause us to go through like a big recruiting process that's going to cost a lot of money and time from senior leadership. Um, and figure out, okay, what's our MVP for now? Which is like, that's kind of the mindset a lot of people are, are probably in these days. And that is a really just powerful frame to think through when you're doing headcount planning, which we're going into Q4, so a lot of people are. Exactly, 100%. And I think especially it comes to play, one thing you noted on, especially in the startup world, um, or maybe more so in scale-ups, I feel like they get this idea of, I want to do insert tactic here and insert strategy here, and because something the company hasn't done before, they just decide we need this role. Whatever it is, they need someone focused on it. It happens in sales a lot. They want to start outbounding, and they're like, we're going to build out a whole BDR team instead of almost testing their way into it. Can we cut off half of the SDR, one of the SDR's time, half of the week to see if outbounding will work for us, start building the strategy so that we can really see what that team needs. On marketing, it happens a lot with like account-based marketing. We have to have an account-based specialist to do it. And then they try these things and it just flops. It does not work. And then so you have this person on your team. Did they need to be there? So that's where kind of the opposite side of this. But how do you test your way into it, either with existing talent or can you use contractors or freelancers until you, yes, this is a great strategy for us. We need to focus on it. And then make that higher because no one wants to have to be in a role where they feel like they don't know what they're doing. And then also no one wants to have to let you go just because we tried something that just wasn't a good fit for the company. Right. There's nothing worse than thinking you need to make this hire. You spend two months on the recruitment process, interview them, interview a bunch of different people, have a bunch of executives meet this person and spend their time meeting various people. You hire them just to realize three or six months later that you actually don't need this role full-time or it was the wrong type exactly. of colleagues. Exactly. A hundred percent. That's where I think being agile with your org goes both ways. And how are you promoting within and encouraging development, but also how are you not hiring just because you can? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a great reminder. Um, so you had some thoughts also on how marketing can help with churn. And that net retention number is really important for folks right now. So I'm curious 
Can you unpack that a bit more on some tactics or ways you've seen marketing able to help the CSM teams? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I feel like marketing, typically, um, and maybe I'm biased from my my marketing ops background as well, but I feel like marketing has access to a lot of information and a lot of tools, maybe more so than a lot of other teams. Typically, marketing's tech heavy. Um, and in a lot of that, there's intent data coming to play from several different tools, depending on what you're using. There's a lot of information about what who's visiting the website, what pages, specific things there. So in the past, I have actually been able to tie for existing customers coming up a renewal, give or take, depending on your renewal cycle, sales cycle, maybe even as early as six months in advance, start listening to those customers who are up for renewal. Are they showing intent to churn? Are they looking at features that are not currently in their subscription offering? Or are they looking at our integrations pages a lot? And then how do you feed that information to the account manager so that they know, oh, they're looking at new integrations. I should probably start mentioning that. How do you make the customer stickier so that they're less likely to churn? If they are showing intent to churn and they're spending a lot of time looking up competitors, how do we get ahead of that instead of after they're already in a competitive deal, potentially leaving us, how do we get ahead and start plugging in how we differentiate, how we're better and sending them that material, nurturing them and really bringing that up on check-in calls. Um, but really arming the account management team with the information that marketing just has access to that we send for prospects to sales every single day. Why are we not sending that same information to account managers so that they can have a better relationship, understand customers are looking up new features, Maybe they don't understand how to use things. They're showing intent to churn, add-ons, whatever that looks like, yeah. so that you're building a better relationship, making a stickier customer, and then they're more likely to renew instead of churning. Have you had difficulty convincing other leaders that this is a worthwhile endeavor, that marketing should be supporting CSMs? Um, I did at first, quite frankly. So... Um, it was just, it was a lot of skepticism or it it was looked at almost as this would create more work than it would actually solve a revenue problem. So candidly, I went, I went rogue. I'm notorious for going rogue. Um, but so I went rogue and I just built a quick report. I literally did just that. I looked up like six customer or six customers churning within about six months and the ones that were worth the most in annual revenue. And I just looked up where, what's their status? What have they been looking at lately? Where's their intent? Are they showing intent for other brands? And I just sent that report to basically like the head of the account management team. And I was like, hey, pull this report for you. Happy to talk through it. Let me know what you think. He was at my desk five minutes later. This was pre-pandemic. And he was like, explain this report to me. So walked him through it. And then it was like, can you send this to me once a week for the rest of the six months? Started embedding that information and in, we already had it embedded in widgets in, sale, in right. Salesforce for sales. So started opening those conversations. How do we do it for the account management team and how do we slice and dice it in different ways? And then it just became part of the function. Did That's awesome. Did you guys end up then running paid ads against, like against these potential customers or email campaigns? How did you actually take it from there? Um, so we did not do paid ads, though I think we definitely could have. 
Um, for the most part, it was really making sure AMs could get ahead of it in their conversations. But we also did start changing their nurture programs. We already had customer newsletters going to them. So we basically changed the segmentation and the dynamic content that was going to the customers in that newsletter. If they were 100% happy, basically, or we felt no risk, they got the generic newsletter that we wrote. Um, but depending on what features they were looking in, we would pull in that dynamic content to make sure that they were seeing, you know, white papers, blogs, key studies, what have you on those features so that it was kind of reinforcing. We offer things that maybe you don't realize we do. Don't look at that competitor, obviously in subtext, but yeah, so it, it ultimately performed very well. And I think in this economy, we're all talking about how it's very hard to sell and get net new. So you have to focus on upsells and you have to focus on retention. So I think that's where it's more important than ever before. And I think it's always been important. Just we forget about it. How are existing customers, our existing business teams working with marketing to try something different for either renewals, for upgrades, add-ons, whatever it is. Yeah, that is some next level marketing insights there. I really appreciate that, right? The dynamic content to market the features that they need the most from existing customers. Like that is just a great way. It takes a lot of work to set up the infrastructure to do that. But once you do that, you will undoubtedly improve your net retention numbers. A hundred percent. But think about it. We're doing the same amount of work for sales and for prospects. Marketing's already doing it for prospects to nurture them into sales based on what are they showing interest in? What does data just show that industry or that size of company is going to use the most? It's not actually that much of a lift then to translate that into customers. Cause you're already, marketing teams are already doing it for prospects. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it is right in, in this, in this year, 2023, where lots of yeah. people and companies are thinking about vendor consolidation and how can they just roll things up into one or two vendors. Exactly. The more relevant features you can get in front of your existing customers, the more utility you can provide, the 100%. higher chance you can have of retention. Exactly. Um, and that's all in it. It doesn't translate to uh, MQLs, unfortunately, but I think you, as, as we can convince the exactly. people alive, it'll be really useful. Exactly. I think that goes back to that we were talking about goals, but it is going to take effort and bandwidth away from marketing hitting a revenue goal. So it may open up doors to, do they need a net retention number? Or I don't know what you would call an equivalent of an MQL on a customer side, but we'll make up a new acronym. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's really helpful. Thanks for, for sharing that story. Um, another thing that you, I know you spend a lot of time doing is trying to align sales and marketing teams. And I feel like every week I am having conversations with people about how they can better do this. Just this week, I was talking to someone about how sales is complaining about marketing's ABM strategy and how it doesn't seem to be very effective. So do you have any philosophy that governs your ways of getting sales and marketing to work more closely together? I don't know if I necessarily have a philosophy, um, but I think it, it's really going back to those conversations and that relationship. Historically speaking, marketing's job is to get leads, sales' job is to close them. Those lines have gotten a little bit more blurry where marketing is having more revenue-related KPIs. They're getting involved throughout the entire sales tunnel. You mentioned account-based marketing, perfect example. 
they're not going away just because there's an opportunity. They're still staying on those conversations. Um, so I think it really comes down into the relationship, the conversation. And so for me specifically, I've had conversations with SDRs and BDRs where they're just in their normal day-to-day conversation. I'm like, oh, light bulb moment. We should change this on the marketing side. But also, I think marketing needs to remember, yes, we're the experts at marketing. But sales is the one who's talking to the customers day in, day out. They're hearing it in their verbiage, their nomenclature. What are the actual problems? So are they listening to gong calls or using analytics to see what are those keywords that are being used and making sure that goes back and they refine their message? Marketing, are they arming sales with here's where we're headed coming down the road? And then I think across the board, a lot of it comes down into building that relationship. Are they aligning their KPIs together? When they're built in silos or even the strategies are built in silos, I think that's where a lot of the tension comes from. But if they're both responsible for the same ROI number or revenue number, and then you back that out and they understand how they're going to get it, where they need to focus, where there are problems and how they even help each other. It goes a lot better. And I say easier said than done. And I'm going to call out marketers on this one. I think marketers have to be the one to go first and fall on the sword. Sales are busy. They're stressed, especially this year. I'm not saying marketers aren't busy. We're not stressed. We have the same pressure. But sales, are they're scrambling. So I say marketers have to fall on the sword. How do they go out of their way and take that first step into, hey, I noticed this conversion rate from making something up. Sales to SQLs is really low for this industry. I put together this enablement deck to help you convert here to here in that industry. Can we test it for a few months and see what happens? That will go so much farther with your sales team than just, hey, why aren't you closing my leads? Yeah. Yeah. Falling sword. That I think that's a, a good call. And I think that proactive reach out to the other side is really important. I think the the basic thing that more marketing teams can probably be doing is just spending more time listening to customer conversations and getting that feedback from the front lines. And I think to your point, the in in any whenever you want someone to do something for you, the lower friction you can create or provide, the easier it's going to be. So if that means you're drafting the email, you're drafting the collateral, whatever it is, and it's because you were listening to those gone calls and understanding the feedback or how customers are thinking about things. And then you can then help sales reposition it because you might have a strong belief that, hey, like this is definitely within our ICP. We should hopefully be closing more of these. I've listened to 14 of these calls or whatever it is. And here's how I think we could potentially do some some repositioning on. Exactly. A hundred percent. I think a lot of it comes down to even, are you speaking the same language? And so I think this is one area where there's just a lot of friction between marketing and sales. It's Perfect example, the definition of an MQL. That's one where a lot of times, that's the typical story, let's be honest, where marketing's like, oh, we sent you 100 MQLs. You guys converted one. And sales is like, oh, you're sending us a bunch of crap. And, And there's just this friction on what is an MQL. So I think a lot of times, have you sat down together and defined what is that marketing qualified lead and agreed to that definition and then do you stick to it? I say this, I think a lot of teams on the marketing side, they just throw out lead scoring. And when it hits 100, it's an MQL. Right. Okay, well, what if it? What if that lead scoring is wrong? What if it doesn't work? So how do you have different definitions 
or not different definitions, but different stages. Maybe there's an MEL, an MCL, and an MQL. And MQLs are always that hard hand race. Can marketing and sales agree anyone who has said, I request a demo, is an MQL? You may work the other leads, too, depending on their score, depending on what they've done. But it's not an MQL till it's a hard hand race. Right. So that then sales, the, the definition is the same. You know they've submitted that form. But if you don't agree on that definition, it's really hard to align. Well, what are our conversion rates? Where are we having problems? So I think first things first, just make sure you're speaking the same language. Yeah. Yeah. Pre- make sure you're speaking the same language. Just like, call. And I think the thing you were kind of alluding to also is if the lead scores are not showing causation, right, down the road, then something's wrong. And yes. We just have to be intellectually honest about, hey, maybe the lead scoring system isn't correct. And maybe instead of just focusing potentially on what's going to get someone to book the demo, what, what is getting a high intent lead, someone that's more likely to close or to get further in the funnel to book that? And what can we examine? What is What are the commonalities uh, or correlations we can spot for the high intent leads versus just the ones that are booking the demo? A hundred percent. And I think it, I think it goes even farther down the funnel. And this is, this is where I say marketing has started owning more of that revenue number than just, oh, well, we gave you, we hit our MQL number. Sorry, they didn't convert. But does the definition of MQL need to change? Or does the qualification standards between MQL to SAL need to change? If everything's converting at a very high rate from MQL to SAL, but then they're not converting from SAL to SQL. Guess what? The criteria between MQL and SAL, something's wrong. So how do you go back and revisit? And that is the conversation between marketing and sales. So that's where I think it's really being in sync and stay step step by step and align on every piece of that funnel. What are the expectations? But what are the levers to pull? Can marketing throw enablement? Can we look at the emails? Is it even a small tweak in gone calls? I've seen conversion rates increase from MQL to South just because we trained BDRs on how to use the word um less. But you already know a BDR talking more than the prospect on a call, that changes your conversion rate down. So like, how do you make sure that you're looking at the small things and it's not just what's marketing doing, what's sales doing? But what are those nuances? Yeah. Any other stories that come to mind where there was friction between marketing and sales and you were able to help proactively spearhead some alignment? I mean, I think there's, I could list a lot of stories, but I think the biggest thing it really comes down to is that we're looking at things wrong. I mentioned we're speaking the, make sure you're speaking the same language, but do we have the same definition of MQL? But even a lot of it in your Salesforce reports or wherever you're using reporting, are you using the same filters? I've got, we've all gone to tons of those pipeline calls or revenue forecast call where sales is like, oh, we're at $10 million in pipeline right now. And marketing's like, no, we're at 15. And it's all because they had a different filter on. So make sure you're using the same reports at the same definitions and you're looking at the same time horizons before you start getting at each other's throats. But I think it's really kind of basic, that foundation are you saying the same thing about the same thing? Yeah, that, I think that's a, the great, a great takeaway there is to better align sales and marketing, make sure that you guys are speaking the same language, make sure that you have the same definitions, the same filters, and that 
the entry and exit criteria are fully aligned across both sides of the org. Exactly. It, it's it's not rocket science, and we just complicate it too often. <laughs> Typical. Um, so I want to let, let's talk a, uh, a little bit more on some tactical things here. Absolutely. What's the best money. What's the best money you've seen marketing teams spend? I think this year specifically is a hard question. Um, I can't, I'm not going to share an exact example because I think it really has depended on the team, but I think I'm seeing more teams go into their data and really look at the ROI. And so some are throwing out channels that they swore by in previous years because it's just not converting ultimately to revenue. It may be bringing in a lot of leads, a lot of MQLs, but they're not converting down funnel, even through nurture streams. And so I think it's really the best money I'm seeing spent is the one that are data backed, they have a serious hypothesis on, and they're putting all their eggs to kind of convert them throughout the funnel, not just get them in. And if they don't convert immediately, they're forgetting them, but really they're nurturing them, they're doing the right things, and it's converting to revenue. That's the best marketing money I'm seeing. So does that that mean reducing potential channels that you might be spending time or, or money in, as well as building out more in-depth retargeting nurture programs? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think a perfect example of this is, I forgot who, so I'm sorry to whoever you are, but I saw a post on LinkedIn where someone entirely turned off paid social because they were, the way they were doing it between their retargeting on Google and everything, it was just worthless. It was getting a lot of attention. I was spending a lot of money, but it was not helping to nurture any leads and it wasn't converting any leads. And instead, they used all of that money to do more events because that's where they were, one, getting some awareness, but they were able to nurture late-stage opportunities through events. Mm -hmm. The ROI was simply higher. So they cut a channel to deeper invest in another. That's great money spent to me. Yeah, I think that makes sense, right? You find the figure out the channels that are working well, double channels. Limit the amount of other things you're doing and treat anything else new that you want to add as an experiment that you might test out for a short period of time to prove out whether it's worth spending more time. Exactly. A hundred percent. My philosophy pretty much always, but especially in this this crazy economy we're living in right now, is how do you, for time and budget, how do you spend about 75% business as usual or BAU money? You know this is going to work. You know this converts. Great. And the 75%, how are you always, or 25% others, how are you always testing something else? If it works, move it into that 75, test something else. But how are you always doing that? Because things are going to change. What used to work is not always going to work. And maybe something new is going to work better. The the landscape is constantly changing. Um, Looking back at your career, what are, I would love to hear a quick story on like one of the scrappiest things you've done from a marketing standpoint that, um, was maybe not just like the status quo, but you were able to figure out some type of hack or something really scrappy that. Yeah. Um, so earlier in my career, uh, was at a financial services company. For context, to set the stage, very long sales cycles, very high deals. Um, wanted to start doing account-based marketing. And this was basically when ABM was just first becoming a buzzword. So over a decade ago, we'll say that. <laughs> um, but so we weren't sure if it was going to work. Quite frankly, everyone on the team, no one had done 
account-based before. We didn't know how to do it other than the things we had read on the internet. Um, so basically started trying to build an account-based program with no ABM technology. So for anyone listening, it can definitely be done. Um, but basically had a glorified whiteboard where day in and day out used Marketo to go in and manually look at lists to see who had been on the website, who had been engaging. And we're basically doing our own account-based tracking on this beautifully crafted whiteboard, caught talking to sales about how do we do things and move on those accounts along the way and basically prove out would account-based work for us. Did this for about six months. Eventually, we saw the returns. We saw the value and got an account-based program so that we didn't have to do that so manually. Ugh. But it, it was both a thing of beauty, but very, very scrappy way of doing account-based. It's, you know, I think... There's a lot of people that want to pay for the shiny tool and mm-hmm. you can go a really long ways on spreadsheets and something simple like spreadsheets in your CRM or like Notion or, or Airtable. You could, that can take you really far away if you're scrappy with it. Um, but eventually, right, you'll have to turn that corner. But I think most people get too caught up in getting the shiny tool. And it goes back to what we we're saying before, right? Like you were basically, whether you knew you realized at the moment or not, you were testing out and like trying to build a case of whether or not you should buy the software. And then you were able to prove that. And then. Yes, exactly. But I mean, no software, shiny, shiny tool syndrome is real, but no software is going to help you if you don't have a sound strategy for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thinking about your career as well, is there anything that comes to mind as being a particularly pivotal moment that changed that trajectory or was maybe like, one of the the more impactful roles you ever took on? Um, didn't think about this in hindsight, but I think I'm actually going to use that same example. Um, and I say that because using the first time I started doing account-based marketing, one, I fell in love with account-based marketing, even though it was very man- manual and pay- painful. But I think from that, that's actually one, what got me doing demand gen for the first time and got me into account-based marketing. But it's also then what had my CMO at the time, um, quite frankly, I basically asked for a role change because I was doing social media at the time, but I was not doing social media at the time. I was doing so much others. So I, I had basically requested a role change. And a condition of that was, would I take on our marketing operations as well? Um, and I said yes to that. And it was because of the building this account-based program that she wanted to ask me to do that. And I felt comfortable doing that. Um, and that's really what then opened the door for me in my next role and quite frankly so many roles after that so kind of the same moment really that was that was the early stages of you building the generalist expertise yes. across many things and that i think probably has opened the door for many other things and, and made you uh skilled enough and experienced enough in a bunch of different ways that's helped you rise up the ranks exactly so i think just saying yes to things has been that pivotal moment to, right. Say say yes to things early in your career. And if you want a role change, ask for it, explain why, but be willing to take some trade-offs with that role change as well. Um, all right, let's, let's go to the, the flip side of that. Any dark moments from your career that you were like, you felt pretty bad about for a while, but you were able to overcome? Yeah. Um, I th- be, being transparent, I think there's there's been a few dark moments that have challenged me. Should I be doing marketing or not? 
Um, especially in ops, let's be honest, everyone's broken a form that was very public or sent an email out that they shouldn't have. And you're like, oh gosh, do I even know what I'm doing? Those have been some dark moments. Um, but I think the the dark moment that I'm going to think about is actually the first time I had to lay off an employee Yeah. Um, and let someone go. And I don't want to make it about me. It was so much harder for that person. And I acknowledge that. But I think that was, it was a really rough, rough week. I actually had another coworker. I never eat cookies at work unless I'm having a horrible day. And I was just in the break room sitting there eating a peanut butter cookie. And they were like, you're, what's wrong? Something's wrong. And I was like, I can't talk about it. It's fine. Um, this person was in finance and managed payroll. So they knew. Right. But uh, oh, I think, I think having to let someone go for the first time really changed the way I manage people and just how I view working relationships. But, but that was... How did it change how you manage people? Um, I think it was more, how am I investing in people for the long run? And so now I look at it more so as I'm not a manager because I'm a manager, because I've been experienced anything there. But it's really, I look at management as it is my job to get them where they're trying to go. And it's okay if they're not just trying to move up in the same trajectory in this career, but how are they trying to move to, let's say, from marketing to account management? Or how are they trying to move to sales? And am I helping them get there? And so now, even if we don't work together, how are we building that relationship and continuing to get you there? I still talk to so many of my direct reports. They're at different companies now, but we still check in on those career-long goals and like, how you doing? How can I help you? Who can I introduce you to? So I think I look at it more as it's my job to develop you than necessarily to manage you. Yeah. Hire, hiring is, is fun, but if you get it wrong, it sucks. And it yeah. sucks for everyone involved. Um, and it is, you should always, if you have to go through that conversation, it is never about you as a, as a manager and often, right? Exactly. It's a failure on our parts in, in many ways, but, um, but it's a really difficult, it's like, Let's just be very honest. It's also for most people, it's really difficult to fire someone. It just it is a hard conversation to have, and it takes practice, whether it's before the conversation or just yes, doing it over over time. Um, and so I think that's a there's some some good lessons in that. Um, in terms of your professional circle, yeah, some of the closest people to you from a professional standpoint that you go to or talk to um, when you're looking for advice or help. Yeah, so I feel very lucky. I have a good group of people around me. Some have been former managers or bosses who I would say now are more mentors, but also friends. Um, again, I mentioned I still talk to some of my previous direct reports on a regular basis. I, I really talk to them on a regular basis. And it's not just, hey, how are you doing? Or the face level conversations. But it's even, hey, I'm trying to do this. Do you think that's a good idea? do you think I can do this? And we really, really consult each other on that. Um, and then with the rise of Slack communities, um, I have met some amazing people through those. Some I quite literally talk to every single day um, when it comes to, I have this idea or, hey, I'm considering this type of role or even, I just want to talk about this thing that everyone's talking about on LinkedIn and I disagree with it. Can we vent about it? Like, I I feel 
feel really lucky, but I'm going to say it's a diverse group of people. It's good to have people that can gut check you and that you can bounce those ideas off of. Exactly. I can understand and empathize with your point of view, um, but they're going to be honest with you about Exactly. Um, one, so two other questions before I get you out of here. You're fine. First is, this is this has been a very powerful tool for me to kind of find my own North Star. And so I want to ask this to to you as well. Five Five years from now, how are you spending your time during an ideal day? Ideal working day or ideal day? I think, it, I, I think it, right, this is, now we're getting into the space of uh, <laughs> work-life um, collaboration, shall we say? Yeah. So um, I think it's it's up to you, right, whether you want to be totally retired by then, you would be working part-time. I'm curious to hear if you had a ideal day five years from now, what, how are you spending your time? I think that, that's hard, hard to answer, especially you mentioned at the beginning of, of this recording, I'm fresh off of vacation, so I'm still in let's go travel mode. Um, but I think five years from now, kind of what ideal looks like, yes, is a lot of a lot of traveling for me. Um, hiking as much as possible and getting getting outside. Well, candidly, that's weather dependent. I'm here in Colorado, so don't want to hike, you know, in a lot of snow. Um, but something like that, but I do want my coworkers at the time, we talked about relationships and also just are they good people who give me energy. I want to make sure that I'm surrounded in five years by people who give me energy, but also I can give energy back to, and we're challenging each other, maybe not every day, but at least once a week. Um, and are we growing each other and kind of challenging each other to do better, to learn new things? Um, most of my career, I would say I've been doing things that kind of weren't a role five years before, you know, I started very early in social media, social media managers were not a thing when I was going into college. By the time I left college, they were. So even the rise of the marketing operations field, it existed, but it wasn't called that at the time. So hopefully I'm also doing things that we don't really know what they are yet today or we know what they are but they're not called that yet um so that's a tbd for me because hopefully hopefully we don't do it yet can continually to to chart some new paths i think that's um that keeps things exciting too right is things knowing that you want to take on some unknowns yes Um, all right the last question i like to get people out of here on is what's one lesson or piece of advice that you think about Yeah. um, So this actually came from a personal trainer at the gym, not related to career, but the more I thought about it, it 100% applies to life, careers, and also your workout routine. Um, So for context, we were working on pull-ups. I cannot do a pull-up. And I kept saying, I can't do this. And every time I said that, she would just add a yet to the statement. And so finally, I was like, why do you keep saying yet? And she's like, you can't do a pull-up yet. It's a very different mental shift. And then so now I've caught myself, especially at work, when people are like, I just don't know how to do that. In my head, I'm like, yet. So I think it's to remember just because you don't know how to do something now or it's way too hard now. At some point, as you keep doing it, you learn how to do it and you start doing it day in, day out. 
it's going to become second nature. And so adding the yet to your statement just changes your mental, how you look at it. Because adding the period, I can't do this, shuts you down. You don't want to try. But when you add a yet, you just want to try to do it. And then you want to try to do it better. I love those simple reframes and ways to to totally change your perspective on something. And mm-hmm. whether you're at the gym, you're trying to do a pull-up, or there's a new skill at work or an email that you have to write and you feel like you can't do something, adding that yet on there will hopefully shift your perspective exactly. um, and reframe it for you so you know that it's only a matter of time because most good things are on the other side of hard. And exactly. It, and that is the the other way that I like try to remind myself of doing a lot of the boring stuff or the difficult things in business building. So I think that is that is an awesome lesson to end on. Kaysen, thank you so much for your time. I think this was a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.